Justice Tech Pros here. Before we get into tonight's discussion, I just wanted to give a thank you and an acknowledgement to two gentlemen from the podcast Ruckus Radio, Big Rich and Shattered. I appreciate all the support and I appreciate the continued support. So I just wanted to give you both a uh, verbal thank you. Also, I wanted to just spotlight an illustration I had done. It should be on your screen. Uh, I commissioned an artist to really capture when an injustice takes place while incorporating uh, my firm's logo. And it's Lady Justice holding the logo, weeping with her head in her hand while sitting on the court steps. And I just thought that was a powerful image that a lot of people could relate to that have unfortunately been in a situation where justice didn't play out. And one of the topics that I wanted to, to uh, really dive into on the show is reasonable doubt. Because um, to me, I don't believe jurors are using that the way it's supposed to be used. I really don't think they're understanding or grasping the threshold for reasonable doubt. And I don't think they're understanding the fact that when you walk into that courtroom, and that's where the system's flawed... You know, on the books, and technically you're innocent until proven guilty, and we touched on this on another podcast, you're really not. And the problem is, I don't know if it's resonating that jurors comprehend, it's the government's burden to prove guilt. Technically, a defendant doesn't even have to put a case on. They could just sit there and let the government try to prove they're guilty. And a lot of times they don't do that without having an exorbitant amount of reasonable doubt. The last case that I was involved with, which uh, was very personal to me, obviously it was my father's case, and I worked in addition to being on it professionally and working hard for as long as uh, over two and a half years on it, we really had high hopes because we knew going through it, number one, he was 100% innocent of all the charges brought against him, but number two, just by showing all of the facts, there was nothing but reasonable doubt. So in our minds, worst case scenario, if you just went by reasonable doubt, we felt it was a no-brainer. Because if one case had reasonable doubt, it was this case. I mean, even as far as every defendant involved, one of the um, items that stuck out to me was they tried saying the alleged getaway driver was driving, that his car was captured on video. And what amazed me with that is, when you looked up the model car, now mind you, there was no uh, license plate of the car. It was just a side, uh, side images from different angles of the car, of this uh, model car driving on different streets. Now when you looked up the model of the car, I looked it up, it was what was a fourth generation Hyundai. And the fourth generation ran from 2010 all the way to 2018. Now, the uh, murder on this case that the defendants were being charged with took place in 2013. So this model car that they identified on this video, which let's say that was the model car, and um, an expert came in and said it was a model car, that, that was that model car. You have to remember, that was a fourth-generation Hyundai. So, in other words, by saying that's the model car, that means it could have been, at that time, a 2010, a 2011, a 2012, or a 2013. 
four different years of that car that was identified on the video. It could have been four different years of that car. Now, how many of those type of cars where you have four different years, and it could have been um, different colors because a lot of the footage, it was nighttime, so it's hard to tell. You could get a shade of it. You could tell if the color, uh, the car was dark or light, and it was a lighter car. But statistically, how many of those model cars, if I was a juror, that's the first thing I'd be thinking. You know, once I realized that that car was made 2010, 11, 12, and 13, four years, and that's all you're really showing me on the video, you're not showing me definitively that that's the defendant's car. You're just telling me that that's the same model car. But you're almost playing with words because you're trying to say, well, that's the exact uh, I believe the defendant had a 2012 model. So you're you're playing with words. You're trying to tell me that that's the 2012. When in reality, you can't confirm that. All they were able to really say was that was a fourth generation Hyundai, with, which really meant it could have only been a 2010, 11, 12, or 13. So again, it's, it's, it's smoke and mirrors. They're, they're, they're channeling things to make it look a certain way. And what bothers me is how doesn't a juror realize that? How does a juror look at that without any defining marks? Uh, no dance, nothing to define, uh, no, no license plate uh, numbers, not even one or two numbers, nothing to define to definitively tell you that that, has, that was the defendant's car other than that it was the make. You can't even say it was the year. Because, as I just explained, it's a fourth generation. So you can't even narrow down the year. You could just say it was the make. And you have a four-year span to pick, and a juror looks at that, and to them, there's no reasonable doubt. How's that possible? Why is it possible? Because they're not they're throwing reasonable doubt out the window. They're not understanding what that means. They're not understanding that when you go into that room to deliberate, you cannot have any ounce of doubt that this person's guilty. And it's impossible. I sat there... Pretty much every day, I tried to juggle it the best I could between work and I and and I almost I maybe I missed a couple days, but that case had reasonable doubt from every single day I attended, and I'm pretty sure the families that attended every day could could back me up on that and guarantee it happened every day. There was reasonable doubt between the witnesses, between the evidence that they were showing. Flooded with reasonable doubt. But this car thing really stuck out to me because it was so plain. In my mind, it was so plain. They were really harping on it and making it a big issue when, in fact, you're talking about a a 10, 11, 12, and a 13, a four-year span that this model car could have been. I wonder how many of those cars between a 2010, 11, 12, and 13 Hyundai were registered and owned by drivers, let's say within a 10-block radius or a 20-block radius, that, that was one of the most popular cars because of the price point and everything. I would wonder if you if you subpoenaed DMV and you got all those records, how many of those cars are, were neighbors' cars? How many cars were on the blocks? That's reasonable. Those were all questions I would want to know if I was a juror. Those were all questions I, I would want to know. Well, how do you know that's just not a neighbor driving? How can you tell me that that is the alleged getaway driver? How can you definitively tell me that from a five-second clip of this car passing in front of somebody's home security camera where it's you can't even tell me for sure it's that, that year car. You could only tell me it's that model, which at that time there was four years it could have been, 10, 11, 12, 13. 
and for them not to, on that alone, not to have reasonable doubt. And that was just one instance. And, you know, I was watching a, a YouTube um, clip. It's from a show called Wild About Trial. And there was an attorney on there, Robert Sheehan. And he explained the concept of reasonable doubt in real layman's terms, which resonated with me and it gave me a great, a great visual of how one should determine reasonable doubt. He, 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 I'm going to try to just paraphrase, but his story was basically when you go to a game, any game, hockey game, baseball game, before you leave for that game, you take a, the tickets for the game off the counter and you put them in your inside jacket pocket. Now you go down to the game, you get out of the car, you get ready to go into the stadium, and you reach inside your pocket to feel for the tickets to make sure they're there. And he said that's reasonable doubt. And think about how high that threshold is. Think about how many times you do that. You go somewhere and how many times you check over and over to make sure you have those tickets. So for you not to ever check and not stick your hand in the pocket, that means they met, they met the threshold of convincing you there is no reasonable doubt to convict these, these defendants. I mean, the informants alone on that specific case, they were drenched with reasonable doubt. Unreliable, stories getting all twisted, stories inaccurate, inaccurate facts. Many of the informants, when they would come on, they would tell stories that did not corroborate one another, the exact same story. So if they brought on two different witnesses to tell their version of one of the charges, their stories didn't line up, and that happened. And again, all I kept thinking in my head while I was watching this go on was, you know, we're going to beat this. The truth is going to come to light. They're going to see they're innocent. For nothing else, I, I, I know my father's innocent. So I knew that was without a doubt in my mind. But taking myself out of the picture, I was saying, if nothing else, they have to make sure all of these defendants are convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. And the government did not meet that threshold. I just explained to you uh, uh, about the alleged getaway driver. How, how do you convict somebody of murder based on a car that you don't even know that that's his car? And the other thing I think that they weighed heavily on was the cell site technology. And I gave a whole rundown uh, on, on a prior episode. It wasn't that in-depth. But I'm going to bring on a guest that's really going to blow your mind about how inaccurate cell site is and what disturbs me is when you realize that weather conditions if a cell tower is is is, um having issues all these different elements and i don't know them in and out because i'm not an expert on it that's why i rely on the experts to inform me so then i have an idea of knowing if these things are legitimate or not but when you learn the facts of these things and you see how many different factors can affect the results how does that not cast reasonable doubt? Why automatically do you just take whatever the, the, the government is saying as gospel? Somebody's life's on the line and they have to prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt. But it's the other way around. You're, you're almost giving it where these jurors are, giving, giving the um, credibility to the government and putting it on the defense saying, okay, now prove them wrong. And that's where the disconnect is. They're not doing that. They're really not doing that. Prior to 
you know, when I finally have the expert on who's going to dive into the cell site. Just some things you should do for your own knowledge. Again, for potential jurors, it's good you have a handle on it. If you just Google cell site and junk science, you're going to see people who are actually locked up and convicted based on inaccurate cell cell phone records. Uh, there, there was an article in the Washington Post uh, from, and this is back in 2014. Now they now they even exploited it more so. Where the the headline is, experts say law enforcement's use of cell phone records can be inaccurate, and it goes into this whole um, story about how somebody served nearly 12 years for manslaughter, and she had her plea thrown out because of the cell phone was inaccurate. And that was a plea. The use of cell phone records to place suspects at or near crime scenes is coming under attack in courts nationwide, challenging an established practice by federal and local law enforcement that has helped lead to thousands of convictions. So right there alone, you know there's a problem. They're using a science with quotes at the end of it. You got to air quote that science because it's a junk science. They're using that to convict people and jurors are eating it up. They're eating it up without knowing the facts. So again, how is that not using the rule of reasonable doubt? These jurors are throwing it out the window. The, it's a problem. It's actually a society problem because what's happening is they're going in the courtroom and they're not listening to, to what they're being instructed to do. The judge is instructing them about the reasonable doubt. Now granted, if you get a judge who, who tries to sway things, it's sometimes difficult to see through it. But if you have to have some, some brains when you're serving on that panel and you got to know what you're instructed to do. And if nothing else, take away from there the concept of reasonable doubt. It, it, at the very least, just take that away. I'm not saying you have to think people are innocent, I'm not, but you're really not supposed to go by that. You could think somebody's guilty, but in reality, if they didn't prove the case, if the government didn't prove them guilty, and you're an honest juror, and you're a juror who's doing your job, you have to find them innocent. That's what the law says. That's not the defense attorney telling you to do that. That that's The law is telling you to do that. If you're not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, you have to let them go. You have to find them innocent. It's the government's burden, and the government should have the burden. You're bringing someone into court, you better have everything airtight. You better have all your facts in order. But they don't need to nowadays. It seems they don't need to because jurors aren't aren't going by the law. Jurors aren't going by your innocent to proven guilty. So that's why they're so confident. That's why their conviction rate is so high. And that's why, honestly, people take pleas. You know, that's another stigma. Automatically, assumptions are made if you take a plea, you're guilty. That's the biggest crock of you-know-what. Because you know what happens? Realistically, people weigh things. And when you go in that courtroom, you know the risk. Even if you're 100% innocent, you know the risk of having a juror who's not going to go by reasonable doubt and is going to stereotype you, and is going to prejudice you, and is going to use their personal bias against you. So you're so what's put in front of you? They tell you, okay, you could either face life or five years, ten years. Now, you know, average citizen who's never dealt with these things, they look at it like, well, if you're guilty, why would you admit it? Why would you admit it? If you're concerned, you're gonna 
have a jury who's going to judge you and is going to use all this the pre the predetermined press releases that were put out all articles that were put out against you that hurt you if you're nervous a jury is going to use that and not go by the facts which happens time and again and not go by reasonable doubt you're going to get convicted even when you are innocent so now, when a, when a deal's put in front of you where you could either risk the rest of your life in jail or you could have it behind you and eventually have a life again, some people take it, and rightfully so. And it makes me laugh when you get people who act like, well, they pled, so they're guilty. No, that's not the case. That's not the reality. You live in a fantasy world. They pled because it was the less of the two evils because they knew the justice system's flawed and they knew they would have a really hard shot getting a fair trial. In an ideal world, you watch a lot of those pleas get thrown out of the window and everybody would go to trial. A lot of these innocent people wind up taking pleas. They'll go to trial in an ideal world where everybody goes by reasonable doubt and everybody goes by the facts and the government has to prove you're guilty and you're innocent until proven guilty. In that you know, perfect world, those statistics would change. That whole whole statistical output of the amount of people who take pleas would change but that's not reality and that's what's so frustrating they try to paint it like it is reality and you know oh well they pled so they're guilty no learn the facts before you make that statement learn what they were up against before you make that statement put yourself in their shoes before you make that statement right away they want to jump to those conclusions and then you get the the individual who wants to try to fight it and still has a little hope left in the justice system. And you go and you figure, okay, I know I'm innocent. It's going to come out. And the jury still gets it wrong. Then what? Now you're faced to deal with that. Now you're faced to deal with being locked up when you know you're innocent. Your family knows you're innocent. You're suffer- suffering financially, emotionally, physically. Now you're fighting to get out. You're fighting years of coming off your life because of how slow the process is to fight to get out. And you're innocent and you're stuck in jail. All because a jury of 12 refused to do what they were instructed to do. Refused to use reasonable doubt. The arrogance on some of these jurors, when I think about it. How arrogant you must be that you... Go into there after seeing all these flaws in the government's case, all these holes, all of these informants stepping over each other with different stories, all of this evidence, which really doesn't amount to much, uh, car evidence, which is four years worth of different model cars, uh, cell towers, which is a junk science, no direct witnesses to the murder, no murder weapon. No bullet to even do a forensic on the bullet. No residue. Uh, Another thing that I couldn't wrap my head around, if you're the jury, the first question I would ask all the other jurors, why didn't the government get that car and tear it apart for residue? That was the supposed getaway driver's car, and he allegedly had the, the murderer with him in the car. The government didn't seize that car, tear apart the car panels, Shine a black light throughout that whole car to look for blood splatter, to look for blood transfer. Supposedly, uh, uh, the victim was shot at close range, so there had to be some kind of blood transfer to the uh, alleged trigger man's hand or his clothes somewhere, and it had to then transfer somewhere inside of the getaway car. The government never, never even got the car. They never even seized the car. The car was turned into the dealership 
a little while later and they never went and grabbed it, or you don't grab it within a few days when you have the person identified, they, they apparently had uh, the <clears throat> getaway driver that they're alleging was the getaway driver. They had him identified the day after this crime, which was is another story because an informant fed them that information. So there was definitely something behind that. But you don't go grab that car. You don't pull that car apart. You don't seize it. You don't rip the panels off. You don't rip the rug out to find one drop of blood or even any kind of uh, gunpowder, any kind of residue inside. How does a jury look at that? You're on the jury. There's 12 of you talking. Not one of you speaks up to say that? What are you looking at? What are you doing back there? What are you basically saying? Let's kill some time because uh, we're just going to convict everybody. Let's waste everybody's time. Let's keep the family's hopes up for days and days. And then we're going to come out and put everybody's lights out because we're too lazy to go through the facts. And we're too lazy to analyze what reasonable doubt means. You know, this specific jury wasn't sequestered. So when you go home, don't Google the case. Don't Google that. But how about educate yourself on reasonable doubt every day when you go home? Look it up. Understand what it means. Watch some YouTube videos on it. Go watch that movie, 12 Angry Men. Educate yourself a little bit. If you need a movie to do that because you don't have the ability to understand what reasonable doubt is and how 12 jurors really should analyze a case, go watch a movie to help you along. It's absurd and people's lives are at risk and lives are suffering and it all goes back to who the target is. Whoever the target is is, is going to have to endure this. Whoever is now subject and now a target of an investigation, they're going to have to go through this. And one would hope you're, you're going to rely on a jury of your peers to judge you, and that's not what happens at all. I don't know. These jurors come in, some of them, and they just throw all these things out the window. Common sense is out the window. Uh, belief systems are out the window. They just... The, the defendant not having to prove his innocence is out the window. The government having to prove beyond a reasonable doubt is out the window. It's all backwards. It's all backwards. And people are suffering. Families are suffering. All because jurors refuse to take their obligation seriously. I wish I was picked for a jury. I wish I was because if I had 11 people who were hard-headed like that and so ignorant, I would keep them there as long... I wouldn't care. I'd tell them, get comfortable. Get out your sleeping bags. Because we're not leaving until you guys comprehend what is going on here. You need to prove to me beyond a reasonable doubt. You want to go home and see your families? Great. So do I. But guess what? We have an obligation here. So I don't care how long this takes. I'm not going to put somebody in jail if I have reasonable doubt. I'm not going to send somebody away. If you're guilty, you're guilty. That's it. They got the evidence. They got the goods on you. You're guilty. You know, that, that's how it goes. That's how life works. If I, if I did something wrong and, I, and I'm guilty, I'm not going to be surprised. If, if eventually the day comes, I have to pay for whatever I did. That's how life works. But when you're not guilty and you're thrown into this circus... And in your head, you keep saying, I'm not guilty of these things. It's got to come out. And not only are you saying it's got to come out, your team is exposing it at every angle. I'm going to give you another example of reasonable doubt. The other side, when they 
introduced audio, and I touched on this in another episode, but I want to go just a little more in depth. When they introduced audio, they'll give the jury accompanying transcripts that, of course, the government creates. Now, when you go through those transcripts, which I noticed a lot of the, you know, a lot of other attorneys, they just accept the government's and they don't really listen to it for themselves to verify it. Our team went through every one. We scrutinized every one and, and I could write a list of the mistakes we found. And of course, the mistakes were always in the government's favor. One sticks out and, and then when you bring it to their attention, they did change it. But now if we don't catch that, they're going to introduce that. One sticks out where... They were trying to say that one of the individuals on tape was putting was repeating that my father said, stay low. That's what they use, stay low or stay back. When in reality, the guy said about my father, he's a good guy. That's what he said. That's what was on the audio. He's a good guy. But on the government's transcript, they had stay low, that my father said, stay low, keep back, keep back. Or keep low, something like that. And they were trying to insinuate whatever they were trying to insinuate. Meanwhile, in reality, it said he's a good guy. You're kidding, right? That's a joke? That's not even close. That's an intentional... Now, we don't catch that. They use that transcript and that's what the jury reads. Fortunately, we got that knocked out. Now, again, I don't know how these things didn't amount to anything. I don't know how a jury doesn't see what's going on here. They, again, they just toss these things aside. And it's all about just playing fair. I have nothing against the other side. That's your job. I'm not, listen, you signed up, you know, your team government. God bless you. Just do it the right way. When you see certain things going the wrong way, why not just step in and be like, okay, that's not accurate. Let's get that cleaned up. Don't, don't change those words. That's not what it says. You know, it's a problem. It's a big problem. These things just kept piling up and piling up. And then you're bringing in you're bringing in informants who admit they've never met one of the defendants, but yet they're testifying against them. They paraded them in one after another and they stood up, no, I don't know. One of our attorneys asked, well, how do you know, how do you know uh, my client? Oh, I saw pictures of him in the paper. You, are you kidding me? You saw pictures of him in the paper and that's how you're identifying him in court? That, that's incredible. That That's truly incredible. And and I blame the jurors for that. That's who I blame. Because we're, the, the, juror is the, the jury is the public. And that's us. We're supposed to go into that courtroom and we're supposed to right these wrongs. We're not supposed to eat up the nonsense that's being fed to us. We're supposed to go through it, sit in that deliberation room, go through the facts... Not the accusations, not the assumptions, not the insinuations, the facts, and the actual hard evidence. That's what a juror's job is. And they're not doing that. I'm telling you firsthand, they're not doing it. Some get it right. I'm not saying it's all like that, obviously, but I'm just talking from my experience. The majority of them get it wrong. The majority of them get it wrong. They're not looking at the facts, and they're not, they're not even thinking about reasonable doubt. They're not even thinking about that. They're, I am convinced they're looking at it like you have to prove you're innocent. The government doesn't have to prove you're guilty. You have to prove you're innocent. And now say you have a legal team. Say you have a legal team who uh, isn't competent. 
which happens more times than not, and it's very unfortunate. And that's why I have a handful of, of attorneys I would recommend. And I've actually been getting emails about that, and I've been getting calls, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. I, I will get back to you because I have a couple that I would recommend. But let's say you have an incompetent team. Technically, by law, the government has to prove you're guilty. So your team, although it's extremely important, if they do, if they aren't as experienced or as knowledgeable, it shouldn't have detrimental effects if you're going by the law where the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt all kinds of evidence. But that's not the case. We know that. If you don't have counsel that's up to speed and you don't have counsel who's going to be able to put on a strong case for you and prove the legitimacy of the claims that you are innocent, you have a problem. You have a problem, and it's and it's not fair. It's definitely not fair for those who are less fortunate and those that can't afford uh, counsel, quality counsel, and those who don't have the time to go through and find out who's going to help them. And that was another reason, honestly, I got involved with this or my current organization because I wanted almost. Although the public doesn't hire me, I I don't work for the for the client. I work for the attorney, but. We all kind of hold each other accountable. You know, I'm in, you know, I'm calling the client, I'm calling the attorneys, I'm keeping everybody in the loop of what's going on. We're all holding each other accountable, and that's a big part of being on the team. If one uh, woman lacks and one man lacks, they keep each other in check. You know, they check in on one another, or, or one person isn't doing his job, somebody else steps in it. You know, that's what you need. You need a team dynamic to make sure everybody's doing what they have to do. Unfortunately, a lot of people who can't afford an attorney, they get assigned somebody who's there for the payday. They're billing the government tens of thousands of dollars. And I, and if that was me, I'd want to see the workload. I'd tell them, all right, bring me everything you've done. I want to see all your logins. Are you using a database to log in to check the evidence? Let me see your computer login screen. I want to see how many hours you're on your computer. I would really be a nightmare client because I would check everything. I would drive them nuts. Because uh, I wouldn't accept, you know, accept that nonsense. And I've dealt with a lawyer with that where, you know, we throw those crazy numbers out. Oh, I worked 900 hours. 900 hours. Whatever, whatever you're taking, give me some of that because you didn't work 900 hours. You're lucky if you work nine hours. And they think, you know, a lot of them think like the client's a moron. And that's the problem. You know, when, they, when you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're really not. You're really not. And it's a shame because I see a, a, a lot of poor, you know, defendants getting bamboozled and they think that their attorney's fighting for them and they're not. You know, they, they're just billing and, and, and they don't even believe them. They, you see a lot of these attorneys, they don't even believe the client. They think they're guilty. They, they're just going through the motions. They're doing another payday on to the next. And that's not what defendants need. They need somebody who cares, somebody who's going to fight for them. Somebody who's going to make sure they do everything they can and exhaust every avenue possible. You have to, when you start picking apart that discovery, I'm telling you there's a lot there. I've just seen lawyers not even look at it, not even open it. I'd have conversations on different cases with lawyers and I'd ask them, oh, did you check out, you know, file H? They would have no idea. They were looking at me like I had three heads. And in my head, you know, I'm like this poor defendant. This poor defendant, this guy's not even looking at his at his discovery. We already got conversations transcribed. We're already pulling stuff off 
on our side. We're already examining things, and this guy didn't even open the document yet because he's too busy scheduling his other cases that he has a phenomenal marketing marketing scheme going where he looks phenomenal on the internet. But you know what that means? Absolutely zero. And, you know, we'll dive into that in another episode of, of quality versus uh, smoke and mirrors and reality versus a facade where it relates to hard work and attorneys. And there's a lot out there. Don't get me wrong. I'm obviously limited. You know, I've only been doing this three and a half years in this specific industry. So I haven't, uh, you know, uh, come across many, but I've been hired by some some top guys and top girls and, uh, you know, really, really uh, quality attorneys. And on the other side, I've, I've seen some that are just billers. That's all they do. They just bill. Whatever they can bill, they bill. So you really, you got to make sure you have the proper defense. So today I really, you know, I think we dissected reasonable doubt a bit. And I think we, I think I um, expressed how I feel on that and how unfortunately I think that is a big problem. <clears throat> and I don't know how to fix that other than things like this. Uh, you know, the more people talking about it, the more YouTube videos about it. The one I mentioned earlier was a great one. You know, the more they try to just understand it and learn it and the more they realize the law says you have to convict somebody based on beyond a reasonable doubt and if they practiced that we wouldn't have the majority of the convictions we have to just close up on uh or should say getting close to closing up because i'm sure i'll go on a little bit on the whole reasonable doubt I think informants play into that as well, and I know that was the you know topic of the prior, um, I think it was episode uh, three, was informants, but that should play a huge part in reasonable doubt. You know, this last case, and a few other cases actually that I was assigned to, where some of the informants came in and the um, amount of money they made to be an informant came out, automatically that would put me in reasonable doubt, automatically. When they're getting paid so handsomely, and I'm not saying that would rule them out. I'm just saying they would have to, they'd have an uphill battle if I was a juror just explaining, justifying that to me. You know, justifying that they're not just in it for the money. I would really need to see their character and to see what they're all about and to see why they decided to to uh, become an informant. You know, and that, that should factor in a lot as well. Were they in trouble? Are they facing big time? Did they get caught up and now they decided to be an informant? You know, what is their agenda? Because wouldn't that tell anybody with reasonable common sense? Well, this person got jammed up and that's the only reason they're in now. And they're going to say whatever they can to help their case. That's the bottom line. They're going to say whatever they can. And they actually receive what's called a 5K1 letter. Uh, The informants get a 5K1 letter which is presented to the judge if they're facing sentencing on a, on a previous crime, the government will issue a 5K1 letter. Now, when they talk about that in court, what the, what the letter does is basically it, it, it's, it's almost like a referral letter. You know, it's like when you're making a recommendation to somebody or you have a client who gives you a letter and gives you a recommendation. That's what it's like for an informant. Basically tells all the uh, cases they appeared on, the results of the cases, 
you know, what they've done to help the government. And in exchange for that, they get leniency. Now, now here's the funny part that I find amusing. They, they say it all the time in court. They say, well, we didn't promise you anything. And you know that the it, your sentencing is still up to the judge. The judge can still sentence you to life. And, you know, the informant goes through the whole uh, motions. Yes, no, I, I understand. So it, it's really meaningless, the letter, you know, because the judge is going to do what they want. Now, does anybody buy that? I would love to get the statistics. I don't know if it's available anywhere, but you know what I would love to see? I would love to see the impact that those 5K1 letters have done. I would love to see if they didn't have that letter, what would they have got? What was their range? What would they have got sentenced to? And now with that letter, what did they get? What did the judge wind up giving them? I would bet dollars to donuts 100% of the time they got favorable sentences, hugely reduced sentences. So, the, you know, the government could say whatever they want in court. And again, the jury buys it where the government explains, well, the letter is really meaningless. It's just a recommendation. It's up to the judge's discretion. Does anybody really buy that? A judge is seeing the letter. A judge is, is saying that this witness has helped the justice system. You don't think the judge is going to factor that in and reduce their sentence tremendously? Again, I want to see the, see the statistics on that because I guarantee that's never happened. I guarantee the gov- the judge has never got a letter, a 5K1 letter, with with good good results and rave reviews and then hammered the witness with jail time. I guarantee that's never happened. And if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to say it. I guarantee that's never happened. It's just amazing how they paint this picture in court and the jury buys it that it's meaningless. The jury wants to make it that, well, even though they're getting the letter, it doesn't mean anything. So they're really just trying to tell the truth. No, it's just one of those things that behind the scenes take place. They're going to go through the part. They're going to go through the technicality of it. They're going to explain that it's just a recommendation letter and they have no influence over the judge. And I'm not saying they do. I'm not saying the judge is influenced by the government in any way or the prosecutors. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the judge is sitting there. They're getting a letter that is saying how well this informant uh, produced and the results they got. It's just that's their job. That's their role. They're going to they're going to one hand washes the other. The judge is going to look favorably. They're going to say, OK, you did help. You're trying to right or wrong. I'm going to give you a reduced sentence. But to play it out to the juries, that to do the jurors, that that may not happen is ridiculous. It's going to happen. It's a, a matter of fact it's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. The guy or the girl is going to get a reduced sentence because they are testifying. That 5K1 letter is going to do a lot of good for them. That's why they're motivated to do this. They want that letter because without that letter, in this case, without that letter... Uh, these guys were facing life in jail, a lot of these informants. One informant was the best, this uh, Anthony Zaccalillo. And again, I hate to voice my uh, personal opinion, but absolute clown. The guy's an absolute clown. Uh, He was on reality shows. He was one of those Gavones that I was talking, you know, when it was good for him, he was a Gavone. He was like a mama's boy, uh, some ridiculous reality show. And... um, when he was asked, you know, was he aware of the time he was facing? He went, no, I have no idea. He was facing life. But he answered he had no idea how much time he was facing. You're facing life. You don't know that? 
And and let's say that's true. It works against him. And I don't know how the jury didn't pick up on this. Number one, let's say they think he's lying. So now you know he's lying about that. Now let's go the other way. Let's say it's true. Let's say you believe that he didn't know he was facing life. The jury doesn't put together. This guy is so confident that he's going to get that 5K1 letter and it's going to help him so much it doesn't matter that he's facing life because he knows that's not even an option. They don't make that correlation. That would be the first thing I would put together. I would say one of two things. This guy's lying through his teeth. He knows he's facing life and he just doesn't want to say it because he knows it's going to show he has a motive to testify. Or he doesn't know he's facing life and he's so arrogant that he knows his testimony is going to save him. And it's meaningless that he's facing life. Because he's going to get the letter and the judge is going to sentence him favorably. That's, that's what's amazing to me. How jurors don't use that common sense aspect. And just think about these things to themselves. And they allow these informants to lie right to their face. Or be so arrogant right to their face. And they just accept it. They go back. They deliberate. And all that means nothing. And I don't know where the disconnect is. Is it that? Are we that? biased as a, as a society that just by looking at somebody we think they may be guilty or because we we read headlines from 20 years ago about this person we think they're still guilty even though we don't think they're guilty of any of the crimes that they're being charged with we just think they're guilty so we're going to convict them they're throwing evidence out the window and reasonable doubt for sure out the window because if any case and I'll say it again and I hate to keep you know, harping on it, but this case was riddled with reasonable doubt. I'm I'm gonna probably on different segments as things pop in my head. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring them out again because there were so many that just kept coming as they were playing out in court, especially with these alleged witnesses. And I told you I wouldn't call them witnesses. These guys were liars. They were just out and out liars. There were so many lies that were exposed. And that's what bothers me when you see these guys are lying and their lies are getting exposed. One guy actually lied right on the stand. He got caught lying right on the stand. And and he had it read back to him where he was lying. And then they tried making an excuse of why he lied. That was the best. They tried to justify his lie. The government tried to justify this guy's lie. That David Evangelista. They tried justifying his lie. He lied about uh, something. He, li- he was, The guy's a heroin addict. And he lied about uh, uh, breaking out of jail the first time. He broke out of um, a halfway house. And he lied about it. He was a heroin addict. And then they tried justifying it because they, they said, well, he didn't want to say he was a heroin addict. Okay, so we justify lies now. So you could justify the lie and just sweep it under the rug. Everything's good. These are the things we're facing. These are the things that people are up against when they go into a courtroom that society doesn't see. And I honestly was naive. I was because I really thought what I was seeing, the jury was seeing. And in my head, I was saying, okay, these are 12 open-minded people. They don't need to like anybody here. They don't need to not like anybody here. If they just go by the facts and they go by their charge of reasonable doubt, we're good to go. And I think a lot of what affected the outcome of this case where it relates is they, they were introduced a Pinkerton doctrine charge. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that in another episode. But if you have an interest in it, look it up. It was introduced in 1979 and they don't, they don't always use it. But they, they do use it, it seems, when they have lack of evidence. When they have somebody who's completely innocent, they'll throw that charge in there to confuse the jury. 
This way, they, they convict based on confusion. And I think that's what happened here. And we're going to dive into that in another episode. Some of the topics I'm going to hit on, uh, just to give you a little overview of different things. I want to hit on hearsay and the exceptions. There's actually rules of exception to hearsay. And I want to dive into that just so the public, uh, the listeners have an idea what that means. Because in one breath, you're saying you're not allowed hearsay. But then in the next breath, you're telling us that there's exceptions to the hearsay rule. So I want to I want to go into that. Um, and there's uh, 23, I believe, exceptions to the hearsay rule. But I'll go into that in more detail. I want to go into some of the uh, cases that I worked on, some of the uh, uh, information on those cases directly. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a podcast on the grand jury and how that works and how anybody could get indicted because it's really one-sided. If they target you and they want to indict you, you're going to get indicted. So if you're targeted and it's from the grand jury, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're going to get indicted. That's just the way it works. And also I want to get into about how judges have such a huge impact in running their courtrooms. So those are the initial subjects that just popped that I wrote down that I'm going to, I'm going to dive into. And I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. Speak soon.